2: Double. Your head. The- <laughs> baby, baby,
0: baby. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. This is Priya, and, um, join with me are Shaherazade and Max. Hey, guys.
3: Hi, Priya. How are you going? Hi, Max.
0: Ah. Oh. What a time, what a time. It's so early Um as we pre-record this. Hopefully, hopefully going to be phasing back some studio recording soon. Oh, it will be nice to be live in the studio again and not
4: recording this yeah. two days before the show.
0: <laughs> yeah, I like I like that sense of urgency.
4: You know, when it's live, it's like you don't have that chance to um, edit your yourself again, you know, so you – You just say the thing properly or you just say, I feel like I've said this, uh, I feel like I say this every week since we've been recorded on Zoom, so I'm going to say it again.
5: (laughs) Yeah, we do end up sort of like broken records (laughs) each week. We're like, it's so early and we miss the station.
0: (laughs) Um, Speaking of missing the station as well, um, just quickly. Next month is going to be our station appeal because we can't do the usual 3CR Radiothon fundraiser because of COVID-19. Um, so just keep your eyes peeled. You can visit our website, 3cr.org.au, and um, right on the front page, there should be some instructions about where you can go to donate and um, support Radical Radio. Yeah. Um, and I think that starts on Monday, so next week. Hey. We're going to have to get creative with our marketing. Cool. All right. Shall we uh, get into the rundown for today's show? Yeah. Um, this looks like
4: a really cool show. So um, first up, we have the news with Kate Kelly. And then Max speaks with Tanya Talaga, Anishinaabe journalist and author, about her recent book, All Our Relations, Indigenous Trauma in the Shadow of Co- Colonialism.
0: Um, after that, we're going to hear a number of poems by Darlene Silva Soberano. Darlene is a poet whose work has appeared in Mascara Literary Review, Australian Poetry, Cordite Poetry Review, Peril Magazine, Going Down Swinging, and elsewhere. Darlene currently serves as a poetry editor for VoiceWorks Magazine and is a recipient of a Hot Desk Fellowship from the Wheeler Centre in 2020.
4: Uh, and then we've got the first part of a three part series, uh, interview series with uh, the creative minds behind Think Tanja, which is an organisation in the northern region of Morocco. Um, and so Deakin University Students that participated in last year's global journalism exchange to the country will present this podcast. So it's um, and the idea is to understand how think Tunga work with different communities to carve out a creative space in a rapidly expanding city that with high speed infrastructure changes bring urban and social challenges. So, yeah, I'm really excited about this.
0: Sweet. That sounds amazing. I'm really interested to listen to that. Um, and last up. I speak with Jordi Silverstein, who's a historian and casual academic working at Macquarie University in Sydney, as well as Deakin, Monash and La Trobe universities in Melbourne about the impacts of COVID-19 on the higher education sector in so-called Australia and the way that the pandemic has exacerbated pre-existing issues in the sector. So we discuss the actions of universities, the National Tertiary Education Union or NTEU's jobs protection framework and resistance against this from casual university workers. Awesome. Looks like it's going to be a huge show. And now we'll go to the news with Kate Kelly.
6: Indigenous organisations in Brazil are protesting against the inclusion in a bill on emergency assistance to tribes in the coronavirus pandemic of a paragraph authorising Christian missionaries to remain in Indigenous communities. So the bill was introduced on the same day a judge had to block a missionary from being appointed as head of the isolated tribes department in the government's indigenous affairs agencies. Evangelical missionaries have redoubled their efforts to con- contact uncontacted tribes under Brazil's right-wing president Jair Bolsonaro who has vowed to develop the Amazon economically and has strong evangelical support. A little bit closer to home, a sacred site in Western Australia that showed 46,000 years of continual occupation and provided a 4,000-year-old genetic link to present-day traditional owners has been destroyed in the expansion of an iron ore mine. The cave in Jukan Gorge, the Hamilese Ranges, about 60 kilometres from Mount Tom Price, is one of the oldest in the western Pilbara region and the only inland site in Australia t- to show signs of continual human occupation through the last ice age. It was blasted along with another sacred site on Sunday. So the mining company, Rio Tinto, received ministerial consent to destroy or damage the site in 2013 uh, under WA's really outdated Aboriginal heritage laws, which were drafted in 1972 to favour mining proponents. One year after consent was granted to blow it up, an archaeological dig intended to salvage whatever could be saved discovered the site was more than twice as old as previously thought and rich in artefacts, including sacred objects. Rewriting the Act was listed as a priority for Labor before their election win in 2017, and last month Aboriginal Affairs Minister Ben White pushed back the final consultation on his draft bill until later this year due to the coronavirus pandemic. An elite department letter has revealed that the Morrison government is demanding unemployment agencies be proactive about scheduling employment Appointments with unemployed workers, despite mutual obligations being suspended until first of June. This has given a green light for agencies to sort of ramp up their tactics and force unemployed workers into pointless appointments and claim government commissions of uh, about of three hundred seventy seven dollars per initial appointment. So the A U W U is demanding that this punitive system, which has been deemed not for not fit for purpose by employees and the Senate, be immediately scrapped and replaced with a genuine employment service run by public service servants that actually helps unemployed workers through this crisis. So they've started a petition asking the government to ditch mutual obligations, which you can sign on megaphone. And that's it for Thursday's headlines.
5: G'day you mob. Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong, stay safe. And, of course, keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye. You're listening
4: to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital
7: in
2: Melbourne.
5: You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55am, and now we have the great pleasure of being joined by Tanya Tulega on the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Tanya. Buzu, It's good to be here. First of all, I'd just really love to invite you to introduce yourself for listeners.
8: Buzu anin wachea, Tanya Nigis negesnikas. Hi everyone, Uh, my name is Tanya Talaga, I am an Anishinaabe writer, I'm a journalist and I am coming to you from the land of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation and that is Toronto, colonial city of Toronto and I'm uh, very excited to be speaking to you today, Melbourne.
5: And so we asked you on the show because you were going to be coming over this part of the globe for the Sydney Writers Festival, which is no longer going ahead. Um, but we thought we'd have a chat anyway about your recent book, All Our Relations. So mm-hmm. for listeners who haven't haven't heard of this book yet, could you give us just a bit of an overview or a summary?
8: For sure. For sure. Um, the book is about all indigenous people in colonized nations. Um, I, I specifically focused on um, Australia, um, the United States of America, Canada, the Sami lands um, and Brazil. And um, I, I looked at patterns with the violent separation of our people, indigenous people from the land that occurred due to colonization. And I started to do that because um i'm a, it's a bit of a backstory. Um, I was a journalist at the Toronto Star for quite a long time, and The Toronto Star is one of our uh, biggest daily newspapers in Canada. Um, And I was on a a bit of a break. I was on a fellowship year doing something called the Atkinson Fellowship in Public Policy. And I was given one year to basically have a sabbatical and do um, look at one issue that could possibly change public policy in Canada. And the issue that I wanted to look at was why is it that our children, um, First Nations kids, are killing themselves, um, taking their lives in such great numbers? So I started to look into it, like, you know, as an Indigenous person, like I, I I know that there's so much behind what's happening with our youth. And in so many of our communities, we've had um, and we continue to have so many inequity issues. I mean, a lot of our, um, we call them reserves here, um, a lot of our First Nations communities. Um, and they are uh, places that sometimes, a lot of the time, Um, Do not have um, proper high schools for our kids or high schools whatsoever. If you want to go to high school and get an education, you have to leave your community, your language, your home and every single thing, you know, and um, travel 500, 600 kilometers away to another um, to a city. Um, This is when you're 13 or 14. Um, as well, there are so many inequities when it comes to doctors and nurses and health clinics in our communities, access to clean, running, drinking water, access to safe housing. Um, you know, we had reserve. Uh, we had something called Indian residential school system here from the mid 1800s to 1996, where our kids were taken away from their families and their communities and put into schools in order to learn how to become good Canadian citizens, assimilated so you're sort of good colonials, right? Um, it was often talked about how the Indian would be beaten out of the child. You would not be able to talk your language, um, be with your friends. Um, you would have to learn everything, um, you know, in, in English and um, the the British school system. So when I was looking at... You know, why is it our children are taking their lives? I was noticing patterns in many colonized nations, Australia being one of them, um, where all of these similarities, we've all had issues with residential schools, with reservations, with racist policies. Um, you had the stolen generation. We had this 60 scoop of our kids being taken away from their parents and their families and um, fostered out into, you know, um, white families. And um, all, sadly, all um, Indigenous people in these colonized nations share the grim statistic of having high youth suicide rates. So when you ask me what the book is about, um, the book is about all of these things. You know, you can't really unpack one part of the issue without looking at the whole. And what you're looking at is essentially genocide time and time again, you know, in Canada, in Australia, in Brazil, what's been going on with Indigenous people there. And so that became um, the book, All Our Relations.
5: Long, long answer. (laughs) To start with the title of the book, where, where did that come from or how did you come to settle on All Our Relations?
8: Mm-hmm. Well, one of the um, things that um, um, some of our people say here is frequently is all my relations. Um, you know, it's uh, especially among the um, Cree people here. It's like all my relations is something you say, um, you know, when you're finished speaking. Um, it's it's a term of endearment and love. And, you know, we are speaking as one. And so I sort of took a play off of all my relations and called it all our relations because I'm talking about Australia, our relations in, you know, America and in Brazil, um Nunavut. So that's that's where the title came from. And um in Canada the the book was called All Our Relations, Finding the Path Forward, but for the um Australia edition we changed the subtitle to be Indigenous Trauma and the Shadow of Colonialism. Which is, you know, actually, to be honest with you, I like that. That's a better subtitle. <laughs> it's a better one.
5: Yeah. As you have mentioned, you do, you speak a lot about the shared experiences across, across different communities around the world who've experienced colonization. Can you mm-hmm. speak a bit about, I guess, why that felt so important to you to draw those connections?
8: Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was just, a, it was pretty, Interesting to, to try and find, um, research on all of this. And, um, when I started to write the book, All Our Relations, um, and I was on the fellowship and I was researching why is it, you know, children in our communities are taking their own lives. I, I did it the, you know, the sort of the Western typical way. I started reading all the medical studies I could. I started to, um, you know, talk to doctors and nurses, um, psychiatrists, people that work in the field of mental health, looking for um, similarities, looking for even answers. You know, is there a place? Is there a community? Is there something that's working to help stem the tide with youth suicide? And I really couldn't find anything. Um, and I, but I already knew that. Sadly, it's a, it's a grim commonality. And, uh, I didn't really see a lot of scholarly work or academic work on that linkage, but it's all there. I mean, every single one of, um, these nations has violently separated indigenous people from the land. And we are part of the land very much. It's very much in our, um, our makeup and who we are. And if you take that away,
5: you you essentially kill us. You're talking about this question that, that was compelling you or driving you throughout this um, this journey. What um, I don't want to ask, you know, what what answers did you find because it's saying not, it's not necessarily about that or that's not necessarily possible. But, but what did you find as you were talking to all these different people throughout the process of researching and writing this book and these lectures?
9: Mm-hmm.
8: I think the commonality, you know, um, you're right. There is no, you know, there's no magic um, that can be found somewhere that will lead us to, that will lead us to a path forward. The one thing that kept coming up though time and time again is the need for Indigenous people to be at one with the land, to be learning language, um, you know, your traditional language, your custom systems who you are as a person where you belong um where you're from knowing that and instilling those those beliefs in your kids in your youth helps them be proud of who they are because in so much of uh of our society in western society there's been the um like in here in uh, on turtle island in north america There's a perception of, you know, um, basically indigenous people were hanging around in loincloths waiting to be saved. Um, You know, we had no government structures of our own. We had no societies or values or um, constructs or anything. And that's absolutely 100% false. I mean, um, when contact happened. I mean, there were tens of millions of people living, for instance, in North and South America. Like, You know, some people say upwards to 70, 90 million. I mean, a lot of people. And that's, you know, North and South America combined. There were cities. Cahokia in uh, the United States was quite a large city. You know, there were mounds that, um, that rivaled the size of the pyramids in Egypt. There were um, systems of governance, democracy. The idea of democracy, like I could talk about here in um, in Ontario, where the First Nations communities, the Anishinaabe First Nations communities, came together for the um, uh, Three Fires Confederacy, the Council of the Three Fires, um, which predates Columbus, you know, um, and that's tribes coming together to act as one and to have their own forms of governance. There was so much here, you know, and um, again, in so many indigenous nations, colonized nations, you can see the same thing over and over again of um, our way of life just gone. But bringing that back, trying to bring that sense of pride in our kids, you know, and to to realize, you know, you're not just um, how Hollywood portrays you or has portrayed us. You know, um, nobody, none of us think that we're like Johnny Depp, you know, as Tonto. Like we're, that's not who we are. Or Johnny Depp as, you know, is the perfume savage. It was horrible. The Christian Dior um, campaign. I think it was Christian Dior. Um, but I'm not sure. It was just Awful, you know, and that's when you see those time and time again, our youth, they don't feel good about themselves, right? They need to see their heroes and they need to know about their lives and their history and uh, be proud of who they are. That helps with how to find a path forward. learning your language, getting back in touch with the land, um, remembering who you are.
5: And you just mentioned Columbus, and I don't know if um, you know, but here on the 29th of April, that was the anniversary, the 250th anniversary of Captain Cook's landing um, mm. on this continent. And so I was wondering if you could speak to the importance, you know, the fact that you can't have a conversation about, about you know, the, the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people dying by suicide, the number of First Nations, young people dying by suicide around the world, without talking about the dispossession of land and the foundational lie of Terra Nullius here, like in so-called Canada and elsewhere around the world.
8: Mm -hmm. It's absolutely true. You know, when Captain Cook landed in uh, Australia, I mean, Australia's got such a fascinating history, you know, People have been there. Well, if you're a First Nations person in Australia, you say you've been there since the beginning of time, you know, and that appears to be quite true. <laughs> you know, there are um, traces of people in Australia far before first humans were found living in Africa. There is such a rich history in Australia. You know, um, Australia was not the dust bowl or the dust bin. Like not saying that it is now, but you know, with the with climate change and um, how the land has changed because of the introduction of cattle and sheep and pigs. You know, stomping all the grasses and um, changing the landscape. And ruining what was there before. And the people that lived in Australia um, since forever, they had their own system of, you know, growing grasses, their own root vegetables. Um, The land was not as dry and as arid as it is now. And that, instead of being celebrated when Cook arrived, it was obliterated. Right and land back and treating people with equity is the only way for any of us, I think, to go forward. And when we think of things like climate change and, um, you know, Australia and Canada, we see horrible forest fires and effects of climate change and the warming earth. But there's so much to be learned from Indigenous knowledge and from how we can return to that, should be thinking about that. You know, don't pave the parking lot. Get the grasses back. Look at what was there before. And then maybe, maybe,
5: slowly you can start turning things around. There's a comment somewhere in the book, and I'm afraid I can't remember who it's by, but around, around decolonizing the healthcare system and the mental healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to hear your thoughts On that, Because then there's another part where you talk to someone who speaks about how these systems, it's not that they're failing Indigenous people around the world. They've been designed from scratch to, you know, to be to be mechanisms of genocide themselves.
8: Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that have been looked at here is just a bit of a microcosm of what I was talking about earlier about returning to land and how important that is to returning to uh, ceremony and to uh, tradition. And if you look at what the Sami have done in Northern Norway, um, I went to Laxelve, Northern Norway, um, and actually with Dr. Helen Milroy, um, who is an incredible, um, as you know, uh, Australia's first Aboriginal female psychiatrist. And we went to Laxelve, Norway, uh, just outside of it, um, and to visit the Sami, um, Sami people, and they have, um, they've started a, for youth, um, sort of a a mental health treatment, but in the Sami tradition. And it's really quite remarkable because they're taking youth that um, are at risk and they're also bringing their families and they're treating the whole family um, in order to treat that youth in traditional Sami ways, using language, using the land, using culture. Um, And that is proving to be a success in northern Norway. Um, And other people are beginning to study what the SAMI have done. It's called the SANKS program. And um, it's quite remarkable. And it's so true as well, you know, because we believe, like as an Anishinabek person, you believe that we're all connected, you know. Um, Each part of my body is connected to the other. In Western medical science, you've got a podiatrist, you've got a dentist, you've got like, you know, an oncologist and, um, you know, somebody that does um, bone health. Um, in our way, it's it's all connected. Your spirit is connected to your body and you have to treat everything as a whole. And that's what the Sanks program, the SAMI program is also doing. And you also have to know that it, in order to treat youth, you have to treat the parents too, or whoever the caregivers are. Because if a youth is in crisis, mental health crisis, oftentimes the family is, right? The parents are, the parents could have addiction issues or other problems. And no matter how much you treat that child to make that child better, you have to make the parents better too. Otherwise nobody gets better.
5: As a journalist, what's the importance of challenging the sort of the dominant model of, of def, deficit reporting when it comes to conversations in the media around the suicide of Indigenous young people?
8: Mm-hmm. oftentimes I, I know this has happened here in the mass in the uh, mainstream media in canada um indigenous suicide is talked about in numbers you know oh it makes the news because there's you know 13 there's 13 news from attawapiskat on the james bay coast and they you know have tried to take their lives in eight hours and so the numbers are the story and that that gets broadcast on TV, on, you know, in your newspapers, wherever, radio. But no one takes a look at the child, right? And the and the the fact that you're talking about children or youth and um what that child is, has been through and where's that child's story. I think that we all have to humanize these stories. So you're talking about the individual as well. It's not just these numbers. And look at the circumstances. You know, you don't have to just talk about one person's and, you know, expose that person's name and everything else because there's, a again, a second school of thought of, you know, do we publicize, do we write about suicide? But look at the issues surrounding an attempt or a death, like the community. Why is it 13 youth? In Attawapiskat are um you know tried to take their lives. What's behind that? Oh, then you look at the community, start reporting out on the community, you find that there is a housing shortage, and so many of the kids are stuck in homes like that are um falling apart or moldy, and they're they're living with their their moms, dads, aunts, and uncles in this tiny little space um no privacy. There may be addiction issues. There may be issues of violence. I mean, like there are so many things that could be going wrong, or just the general, you know, you're a youth and you're growing up like this, and you're looking on Facebook or on the internet, um, and you're seeing all these other youths with these incredible lives, or and it's 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 different, or you're being bullied online by other people in your community. I mean, there's just so much surrounding that, and so you have to like, to change the narrative, dig deeper. And find out what are all these issues, and a lot of these issues get back to equity, and get back to human rights, and we can change that as a society, and that's the narrative that has to be talked
5: about. I notice that in in media reporting here, often new suicide is spoken about as an unspeakable tragedy. That like that that gets used a lot that term, and of course it is. But I wonder your thoughts on the importance of of speaking about suicide.
8: Well, I'm sure there's the same set of guidelines that we have here. I mean, when I was writing All Our Relations and when I was reporting at the Star on this too, we have guidelines, you know, by the Canadian Pediatric Society, by um, uh, the Canadian Psychiatrics um, Association, that talks about how to do that. Like, you know, how do you say it? So you know, for instance, we don't say um, somebody commits suicide like that's something don't use that phrase you know or um, um, you have there are certain ways and words you can use um, to to talk about this, but at the same time, we have to talk about the issues surrounding what leads to this, and there are very different issues for a lot of kids you know and youth um, and Depending on where you're from, um, where you live, what kind of um, you know city or town or rural area you grew up in. I mean, every child has their own circumstance and story. But I'm talking about historical factors as well, and just basic human rights that add and compound um, to things. Because children, as we know, um, don't ask for the circumstances they're born into, and you know, but they're born sometimes. With the weight of history, if you're an Indigenous child.
5: And it also feels really important to, to ask a question around, around government complicity and responsibility in that there are several times in the book where you talk about how, you know, communities have been aware of what's going on in, in their communities for their young people and have, for example, petitioned government for, for funding, for programs, for mental health support and have been ignored time and time again. Why is it important for you to also continue to raise awareness of the fact that like, that governments must be held responsible as well for continuing to ignore and refuse funding for the solutions that communities know they need?
8: Well, it's part of the historic responsibility and the legacy of colonialism. I mean, governments have to acknowledge what has happened and, um, you know, a class action lawsuit where everyone gets $40,000 for, you know, having their child scooped away from them or being that scooped child away from their families or part of the stolen generation. That's not exactly, that's not how you do it. You know, Um, when you're looking at issues of equity, you need to be fair. And that's hard. That's hard for governments to want to realize and to talk about. I mean, they don't want to give the land back. But it wasn't theirs to take in the first place, you know. And um how do you handle that? Or how do you atone to the fact that, you know, with the stolen generation, children were taken away and generations of families were hurt as a result? Um, There's intergenerational trauma to that. How do you make that better? How do you just wave a wand and get rid of, you know, The fact that there hasn't been proper schooling for indigenous kids in Australia or in Canada or in Brazil or in the lands, you know, in language and um, where kids are treated fairly. There's so much that needs to be atoned for. And I think that the only way to actually do that is to want to there has to be the political will to want a governance equity. And that's going to that's going to be a lot that means power sharing and governments don't really want to do that but they have to make things right
5: and before we draw to a close i was wondering if you could speak a bit more about some of the the incredible um community-led strategies solutions programs that are already taking place you know that this isn't it's not just a, a a distant hope in the future but that there's so much work going on in communities, which you're documenting in your book. Could you say you mentioned the Sanks program before, but could you speak a bit more about that?
8: Yeah, there's the Sanks program and there's a lot of um, communities where people are returning to the land, you know, in um, in Ontario, in Northern Ontario, in uh, Treaty Number no. Nine territory um, that I write quite a bit about. So north of Lake Superior, which is the largest freshwater lake in the world. So north of that area, um up to Hudson Bay. So it's up to, um, you know, you're getting to Canada's north. Uh, It's called the near north. You know, there's, um, there's so much, so many people are returning to the land, you know, trying to engage with the youth, get them fishing, get them in the boats, um, getting them to learn language again, getting them to take pride in who they are, you know, getting elders involved. trying to return to a sense of history and pride, you know, take them hunting. Um, If Every fall we take, um, with Nishinaabe Aski Nation, I've been privileged to go on two hunting trips, for example, with groups of youth, um, First Nations kids who come out of their communities and travel 500, 600 kilometers away by themselves when they're 13 or 14 to go to high school in Thunder Bay. And we take them out on the land and go hunting you know. Um, and when you hunt, you get you're back on the land, you learn language, you learn the ways of the past. And it's, it's cool for the kids, they feel connected to who they were and who they are. Um, and it's also nice to get out of the city, being in a place where it feels like home. That kind of stuff is happening quite a bit. And we recognize that in order to help turn things around, we have to do this for ourselves. You know, we have to instill our kids with pride and um, take the reins there.
5: And moving forwards, what, what gives you hope and keeps you going?
8: That so many of our communities and so many of our youth are doing this and are recognizing this, you know, and all over the world, you know, I mean, you and I would not be having this conversation probably five years ago or ten years ago. There wouldn't be as much awareness. It wouldn't be as much in the forefront, the celebration of First Peoples in Australia or in Canada. I mean, there's been so much. I mean, like you've had, um, you know, you've had royal commissions as well in sexual abuse in um, all of your institutions We've had the um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. We, you know, you've got the stolen generations, we've got the sixty scoop, that is being aired and talked about where before it wasn't. And we need to recognize that in some cases, like kids are still being put into foster care for sure. It's things are still going on. Um, and we're not sharing land yet. There's still lots of work to be done, but we're talking about it. That gives me hope because before it was just ignored. But enough people are aware of what's happening now and just even looking at climate change and what's been going on in the world. And it shows you that we need to come together and start listening perhaps to those of us who have indigenous knowledge and could find a way forward.
5: And before we wrap up, are there, is there anything that we haven't had a chance to talk about that you'd like to mention?
8: I'm really sorry that I didn't get a chance this year to come to Sydney and Melbourne and Bendigo. I was so excited to come to visit with everyone, and I hope that in our new normal, in the after of this pandemic, that I will
5: get the chance to do that. We really hope so, too. Yeah, lastly, how can listeners find out more about about your work? Um, thanks for asking that question. You can find I have a website.
8: It's uh, www.ttalaga.ca. Um, I'm on Twitter, too, at Tanya Talaga. Um, and uh, we actually have, um, in June, I've got some new work coming out based on the seven uh, grandfather teachings. So seven teachings that are passed down to us that we lead our lives um, as Anishinaabe people in and around the Great Lakes, and um, that's going to be an audible podcast in June. So that'll be out, yeah.
5: Amazing. Um, well, maybe we can have another chat later in the year then. That'd be great. That'd be wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Thursday Breakfast Tenure. It's been such a delight.
8: Gichigmiigwich, everyone, and good morning. <laughs>
1: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio.
10: 855
4: AM. Victoria Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned
8: by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au
4: Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter.
0: It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunna and Bidwell and the Naro people and that sovereignty was never ceded.
9: A
1: 3CR supporter.
4: You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast on 855 AM. Next up, we'll hear a poem by Darlene Silva Soberano.
2: This poem is called, You Like the Smiths? There's someone in class today who looks like you. She's got the hunch of your back, the spread of your teeth, and your hair when we were 17. But she's not you, and I'm sorry for that, but I'm glad, and I'm sorry for being glad. Sorry I never called you again. Sorry this is gonna be the year I don't forget about your birthday, but won't send you a text. Sorry about ignoring you at the party last year. You know which one. Sorry you'll never be a passenger in my Mini, when we had so many memories in my mother's car. The Christmas lights on that street in Windham Vale. And the time we sat singing, to die by your side, is such a heavenly way to die. All the windows down, a country road. I'm sorry I never looked over at you like you always wanted. Sorry we never got the scene in the film right before the truck hits the car. I swear that was never about love but about safety, which I suppose are the same thing anyway. Which is all to say I loved you from our 15 minute drives to our two hour drives and to the trip to Sydney we planned but never went. And I loved you when we walked. I loved you when we sat on your bed listening to Stevie Nick singing, Well, here you go again, you say, you want your freedom. Well, I got my freedom now, and I listen to Stevie Nick still, and think of you singing, I've been afraid of changing, because I've built my life around you. Well, I hadn't back then, and I still haven't now, and I'm sorry for that too. This poem is called Wanted to Tell You Something All Day I looked at the top of the tree, leaves against the sky I asked the top of the tree, what do I do? What do I do with all my love for her? The trees gave me no answer because they were the trees The trees were answers I know I asked for too much. I sat by the river and wept. I sat and wept and looked at the trees. What do I do? I am trying to forget about the way that I feel. I'll die with it. I don't want to die with it. Love you. Hope you know. This poem is called Hannah and it's for my dear friend Hannah Wu. Most days, I think I'm waking up to a phone call. But it's really just Hannah sending me 11 texts in a row. We do call in the evenings instead of the daytime to make it feel more like a homecoming. And I am thinking Hannah's accent is my favorite accent. Hannah's voice is my favorite voice. On the phone, I don't say I love you. I say I pay attention to the way you walk. When you walk towards me, I feel I should move out of your way and join the flowers, the flowers that line up to watch you walk. Sometimes when Hannah speaks, I watch her eyes slowly lose their focus on me. I watch her brain move away from earth, bending towards heaven. She tells me all the things that she knows. I am learning. I am having the time of my life, sitting across from her, in the library. This poem is called, This song is dedicated to my 2009 Honda Jazz, and it is after Frank Ocean. 1 Not to bring up the past, but I still believe that everything worthwhile begins on the floor Of a dirty motel room the sheets unwashed the ashtray cracked the plastic cups and a note that said please do not throw away the cups i promised myself i wouldn't speak of longing anymore but i'm still thinking of the night we talked about perfect places that summer we were 19 at the same time that lord was 19. we were young and full of running the coast clear with stars. I'd driven us in my mother's car. We were both a long way from home. And the party was slipping out of our bones. I said, I haven't been kissed in two years. If someone kissed me right now, I think I'd turn into drops. Which was too honest, even for that night. And I wanted to turn off the radio. I should have talked about the threesomes I almost had. Instead, Frank Ocean was singing about nights again. Want to see Nirvana, but don't want to die yet. Two. When we woke up, your playlist reached. Lonnie Bro singing, Maybe one day you'll get to kiss me, kiss me, kiss me. All the lights in the room were turned off, but the light from the television flickered across your face as the characters moved around and the camera cut to another frame. White, then blue, then white, then blue again. I watched the light on your forehead and your eyebrows and your open eyes and your cheeks and your pretty, pretty mouth, and you were beautiful. You sat up and said, I want to try something. I said, what? You said, I want to see if you stay together or turn into drops. I said, okay, and closed my eyes. Then, how am I doing? Then, still here. This poem is called Digging the Dancing Queen, and it is written after Kaveh Akbar. Last year, Jack took a hammer to my house, and with it, I beat my metal case into two dimpled sheets While he ate a peanut butter sandwich, I threw my darts into the toilet and flushed them out all at once. I can still remember my last breaths. I was with a stranger in front of the readings in Carlton. Under the tree, we hunched our moth limbs to shield our bodies from the bratty wind the stranger told me about his ex-wife, how his old aches about her returned whenever he passed by a mire. She had worked there the December they met. Our first date was sponsored by Meyer. he said. If only they'd sponsored the divorce. I shut my eyes whenever the tram stops at Burke Street Mall. Today was the first time. I forgot why. I am here to tell you I was not a good person last year. My steely head drove nails into conversations, careless of the thumbs I bruised. I figured that people could handle the swelling, and I could handle being forgotten in the shed. I was less sorry about what happened, and more, who cares about her? He didn't watch my fingers and mouth in desire, like some girls did when I was seventeen. I was just blunt, my hair too long to be charming anymore, my paper voice crumpled and tossed to the wind. But now, these ruins are so foreign, I could believe they were put in me by aliens, ancient enough for my old aches to return. Now, I regret every break I didn't light, every mouth I didn't cup. Now, the chemicals in my brain sing softly for other chemicals crafting outros of my memories so that I don't remember my promises, just the sound of a hammer colliding with grass. Now, I drift towards clay pot plants at parties and inhale oxygen from absent leaves, trying to coax life stories from exclusive strangers. In 2012, my cousin stopped me from climbing into my grandfather's coffin after I sang... You are the dancing queen, young and sweet, only seventeen, on the karaoke machine, at his wake. He died of pneumonia, and what else was I supposed to do, except grow old enough to poke holes into my lungs the size of bubble wrap, and wait to be buried alive by water. You're listening to
4: Thursday Breakfast on 855 AM. That was Poetry by Darlene silva Sobrano. And next up, we'll hear the Deakin University students that participated in last year's Global Journalism Exchange present the first part of their three-part podcast series.
1: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio,
10: 8 a.m.
1: You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 855 a.m. Today we're joined by two students from last year's Global Journalism Exchange in-country program to Morocco. Hi, and welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and what Global Journalism Exchange is?
3: Hi, I'm Ebony. Hi, I'm Shannon. Global Journalism Exchange is a not-for-profit organization working to improve cross-cultural understanding by fostering better
11: informed journalism. Last year, the program took us and three others from Deakin University to Morocco
1: uh, and so you guys have been working on a podcast series. Can you tell us a little bit about this podcast series?
11: This podcast series explores Tangier, a rapidly expanding city in northern Morocco through the lens of Think Tanger, a non organisation. Founded in 2016, Think Tanger is a cultural platform that highlights the urban challenges arising in the city of Tongia, a region that has experienced rapid growth in a very short period of time.
3: The organisation seeks to address the impacts of urbanisation by bringing together everyday citizens and members of the creative community, such as architects, artists, urban planners and researchers. Their goal is to advocate for better urban planning and enhance the individual and collective experience of people living within urban environments.
11: The podcast will be structured as a three-part series, with each episode exploring a different yet interconnected theme that is at the heart of the organisation. We will begin by looking at urbanisation. In this series, we are joined by the creative minds behind Think Tonja with co-founder Amina Morid and Think Tonja's communication manager, Yusuf Al-Adrisi.
1: Great. So what we're going to do is we're going to play each episode over the next three weeks. So firstly, we're going to play the first episode, but can you tell us a little bit about what this first episode discusses?
3: Absolutely. So to begin, Jonathan McQuee will be talking with Amina and Yusuf about urbanisation in Tangier. They
11: also shed light on the driving forces behind Tangier's rapid urbanisation and explore the concepts of utopias and informal urbanisation.
12: I'm here with Amina Marid, the project manager of Think Tangier, and Yusuf Aladresi, the communications manager at Think Tangier. Now, today we're talking about urbanisation in the context of Tangier. I was wondering, how do you define urbanisation?
9: Oh well, wow. <laughs> such a huge question <laughs> to start. Uh, well, so I think it's um, you have different kind of definition of what is urbanisation. Uh, in Think Tanger the first or the main objective we have is to explore the social impact of urbanism. So for us, it's a process where the city is growing and people and the density. And the infrastructure of the city become more and more important, and also where the lifestyle change. So, and I think in Morocco we we experiment that uh, a lot, like with uh, with the urbanization, the life change within the city uh, completely change because you don't have the same habits, you don't have the same infrastructure, you don't have the same um, uh, interaction with people, with neighbourhoods within the city. And for us, it's something really important and something we, we want to explore through Think Tangier.
12: So what has the impact of urbanization been on the city of Tangier?
9: So, I mean, it depends for what period you want to um, analyze, if I can say. Uh, but the last 20 years, uh, as I told to you before, the urbanization was so fast and I think you had a kind of uh, view uh, today. So the, the first impact was um, there's a change of their interaction between people. Let's, uh, I will give you an example, for example. So when you used to live in a specific neighborhood and you used to know people around you and you have your habits from this market, you know, this shopping, this school, and then through the urbanization You have to change, for example, the neighborhood you live or you have a new job in completely the opposite of the city. You have to have, I mean, to develop new uh, habits, let's say. And we had a really interesting uh, example during the tour about the line on the train station, for example. This is something, one of the impacts. So just to, uh, to be short, like, the main impact was on the people Uh, layer on the people um, situation they didn't uh, feel like they know any uh, they didn't have the same interaction with the city and the people within the city and for us it's something super interesting because when it's come to, when you talk about cohesion, social cohesion in the city, when you talk about solidarity, when you talk about uh, uh, community you see like, how urbanisation impacts all this process, uh, social process.
12: So those changing interactions between people and that shift in social cohesion, is that unique to the urbanisation of Tangier? Or is that a reflection of the wider process of urbanisation that's happening all around Morocco?
9: I think no, no, it's definitely not just uh, linked to Tangier. It's completely something happened in Morocco, but I think... In general, in the global south, I mean, what we call the global south, let's say, because if you look, if you, I mean, if you step back a little bit and if you look at our, about history, uh, on history, the process of urbanization in the south, I think, from my perspective, is so fast, it's faster than the process of urbanization in the north happened when it happened on the north. So, because or thanks to the technology infrastructure we have today, the urbanization is really more faster than it used to be, let's say. So I think this is something specific to the South. But you, you have the same consequences or impacts when it comes to urbanism, I think, all around the world. It depends on what kind of urban plan you have, and I think – and we talk also about it today, but – I think uh, in the Western countries, they, made, they already made some mistakes in terms of urban planning, and today they, have to, they really t- t- try to take it into consideration and change the path they are taking when it comes to urbanization. So why we can't learn from these experiences and build on it and, and not just to restart from the beginning here in Morocco, the same uh, experimentation and the same mistake, if I say so, yeah, for to. No, it's definitely not linked just to Tangier. <laughs> but in Tangier, I think you have some specificities. And I think, like, the, the morphology of, of, of the city, and we had a, a look on it today. We are so close to Europe, to Spain, and we are linked to Europe. We are linked to. I mean, we are on the border between two Auste- one ocean and one sea. So, for sure, we have some specific impacts, let's say, uh, in Tangier, and also because of the local and current situation here in Tangier with the migration in both sides, not just uh, from the south to the north, but also a lot of people from the north are coming to the south and to to Morocco. So, yeah, it's super interesting to see and to to live under this uh, urbanization today.
12: So you mentioned that the process of urbanization has been incredibly rapid in Tangier. What's been the driver of such rapid urbanization?
9: It was um, a political wish and vision. So, um, because Tangier has a strategic position today, I mean, it always has a strategic position. So um, the Moroccan government wanted to take uh, part or take advantage of this strategic position. So it decided to developed all the north of Morocco, and specifically Tangier. And one of the main drivers was the economic uh, investment, let's say, with the fair trade zone, so we have different, uh, plenty of um, companies, foreign and, uh, companies who settle here now in Tangier and all in the region. So, yeah, the, the economic investment, the economical investment was one of the main uh, drivers, and tourism For sure. it was also another driver.
12: So today, lots of the work of Tanjia, you're working on a project, if I understand correctly, based around this concept of utopias. And also you work a lot in the area of informal urbanisation. I'm wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about the connection between those two concepts.
9: Yeah. Good question. So when we start to think about the informality and I wanted to explore this theme, uh, like how the city... I mean, how people in, in, within the city live uh, through informalities, activities, interaction, economy, and we didn't want, it to, uh, we didn't want to romantize it, you know. Sometimes when we talk about this specific uh, sociologic, let's say, phenomena, one of the danger uh, is to, you know, have a, like, romantic narrative around it. Wonder- we didn't want it to, to, to reproduce it. But at the same time, we wanted to explore it. As, um, and let's, ha- I mean, the goal was to also to, to, to see some hope through, I mean, at the end of this exper- exper- experimentation and explore- exploration. So this is ha- why uh, Utopia comes. When, you, uh, when it comes to think the future of the cities. If you think just with specific technique, scientific uh, case or boxes, it didn't let you uh, some enough space for dreams and enough space for hope, and enough space for creativity. So for us, exploring utopias and exploring informality and their... Utopia and informa- uh, formalities. Utopias. It allows us just to be more creative, to be more um, free in the sense of thinking, but also in the way, like, I mean, utopias. It's also a way to be politics, to, to be like to have a politic uh, statement in the way uh, of um, thinking about utopia society and utopia's futures. Oh, you want to say something? I don't
10: I think like generally like we are like we link the informal or uh, like uh, the informal urbanism as something very bad, very dystopian, very unstructured, very something that we should simply like avoid or just erase. Like the idea here is to, as uh, Amina said, like bring some kind of hope and see more or less the positive side of of this informal. Like not that that we advocate the informal as such, but there are a lot of uh, informal practices that, um, that we find good, like for example the interaction, like the proximity. Like for example, when you, when you go to an, an informal neighborhood, you, you find that people connect to each other, like they know each other, they are some sort of family. Mm-hmm. And this is some sort of connections that we find in the informal spaces. We don't find them, for example, in the big cities. Like there is a huge uh, individualism that people don't necessarily know each other, they don't know their neighborhood. Uh, and uh, like all these aspects like Converge to like create some sort of informal utopias, like out of this uh, positive incomes and outcomes. I would say.
12: Um, so, Yusef, you mentioned the communal aspect of these informal communities, and also the individualisation that you see within the larger cities. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the social divides within Tangier. Like, what are the fault lines that separate people to avoid them forming these communal utopias?
10: I I think the like the the biggest aspect, I would say, like because it's something that we find um, like in Tangier and in different cities here in Morocco is like it's generally the the uh, the neighborhoods that we find in the periphery of the city. Like, generally, like, the center of the city, it's, um, like, it's becoming, like, um, due due to globalization, like, it's becoming more individualized, like, it's it's technological aspect, and this, like, interferes also with the the human relations. So, I think, like... um, the, the wall like, There is no clear wall like, Between the, this, uh, this individualization And the, the communal like, interactions But I would say like, It's generally that we find it Also here in, uh, in, in Tangier For example in the center of Tangier Like in downtown like, You can find for example like, More aspects of uh, individualism But like, in the periphery like, we, s- we still have These uh, this, this connections between Different uh, kind of, uh, of communities So so I think, um, like, this is one of the main aspects that we find here in our culture, like in, like in the Moroccan culture in different kind of areas. Like, there are different areas here in, uh, in Morocco. Like, we found this, this uh, the same aspect, but with um, globalization, like, this individualism has been more present, but not in all, uh, all the areas of the city.
12: So you've mentioned urbanization leading to more individualism, especially... In the city. I'm wondering, how have the informal communities on the outskirts of Tangier adapted and innovated to combat the growing trend towards individualisation that urbanisation has brought?
9: We can't talk about um, informal communities. We talk about informal neighborhood let let's say, because they are not uh, uh, controlled by uh, – not controlled, not planned by the, by the states – Oh, we can also talk about uh, informal practices, for example, the informal transport, which is also not a public transportation, but more communitar- commun- no, communitarian transport, but not about informal uh, communities. But what we can see, if I understand your question, for example, in this, on, on those specific neighborhoods, like informal neighborhoods, there is a strong sense of community. Definitely, and also, I think also the um, typology of the, the architecture of the neighbourhood maybe it separates those neighbourhoods from others, but at the same time creates a sense of belonging to the community, very strong. And we experimented. Uh, I think it's, 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 this is not something new in Morocco. Like we have a huge sense, of, I mean, traditional sense of family, of community, of of hospitality, and more Islamic sense of of it. So yeah, but um, just to come back to the previous question, you asked something about, uh, and I think just to add on what you said, uh, Youssef said, I think urban spaces are really important because if you have urban space who allow people to extend, to meet, and we have an example on the court side, because you have concrete everywhere and one part of the coast side is made uh, with grass and uh, trees. And just this part is always crowded by people. So the way you plan, and uh, your, the urban space, the, the public space, and the law also, because in Morocco you don't have, for example, for artists, you can just play music outside. There is specific law or to have specific, uh, you know, cultural event outside. So um, I think those uh, um, those topics, not topics, but uh, this is also a way to create uh, a sense of belonging within the city, a community sense, but also just to feel feel okay being in the public public space, you know what I mean? To enjoy this experience of um, passing by the public space, which is also something the urbanization uh, this kind of urbanization, let's say, because I don't think it's proper urbanization, but when you rationalize the way you plan the urban space, I mean, you have the, for example, university here, your house here, and you market here, and you will think, okay, I need to take this bus to go to my university, and this one to go to my market, and you don't have to explore around, and you don't need to do it because, or want to do it because you have nothing to do. You don't, uh, you don't enjoy what is public space, and the local authorities, I think they have a responsibility on that, because the city belongs to everyone, and we should feel, you know what I mean, um, more um, included
12: on, on this. Awesome. So thank you so much for uh, those fantastic points you've made about the innovation. It's really encouraging to hear about how d- communities in Tangier have adapted and innovated to these global forces that are shaping the city. So, Amina and Youssef, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real privilege you. to hear what you've had to <laughs>
9: contribute.
3: Well, that was Jonathan McQuee speaking with Amina and Youssef about urbanisation in
11: Tangier. If you would like to find out more about Think Tonja, you can follow them on social media at Think Tonja or visit their website, think-tonja.com. And that is Tonja, T-A-N-G-E-R.
3: In the next episode, Adair Winda speaks with Yusuf and Amina about creative spaces, places in the community where artists can come together and work on their creative projects.
1: That was Shannon and Ebony wrapping up an interview by Jonathan McCoy. All three participated in the Global Journalism Exchange 2019 Journalism Program to Morocco that saw Deakin University students visit the country for two weeks to enhance their cross-cultural journalism skills. You're listening to 3CR 855
0: AM. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. We now go to an interview with Jordy Silverstein a historian working at Macquarie University in Sydney and at Deakin, Monash and La Trobe Universities in Melbourne. Jordi and I will be talking about the impacts of COVID-19 on higher education in so-called Australia, where the pandemic has exacerbated pre-existing issues in an already casualized sector. We discuss the actions of universities, the National Tertiary Education Union um, or the NTU's jobs protection framework, and resistance from casual or sessional university workers and graduate students. Hi Jordy, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks so much for having me on, Priya. Um, So I was wondering if you could perhaps begin by maybe introducing yourself a little bit past the institutional affiliations. Um, So what do you do? Um, Why are the proposed cuts to the university sector so important to you?
7: Sure, so I'm a historian um, and I live in NAM in Melbourne. so I got my PhD from Melbourne University in 2010, um, and I've worked in casualised work and worked in um, had a postdoc for five years um, from end of 2019 to 2014. So my research um, looks at um, uh, trauma and memory. It looks at child refugee policy. It thinks about histories of crisis. Um, I also look at like, Holocaust humour. Um, I look at all sorts of Things around the ways in which um, communities make themselves, basically, kind of, you know, it's what I really do. Anyway, that's kind of what I do. But um, yeah, so I've been working, I guess, for a while in the sector. I've been um, employed in jobs at universities um, since 2006. First as a tutor when I was doing my PhD, and then um, a bunch of different jobs as a research assistant and a tutor. So I guess yeah, this I'm kind of all in on a career in higher education, um, which is terrifying, Um, and I guess terrifying for anybody who, you know, anybody in the world who has kind of put all their chips into one kind of workforce or, or, yeah, place of work. Um, So you know, as you said, the problems predate um, COVID. Date corona um, universities as part of a colonial project that's their history in Australia and that's really fundamental to why they're deeply problematic um, and why the problems are so entrenched and require mass large-scale change um, universities are extractive um, to use um, the other day there was a forum um, uh, uh, that went all day as part of the NTU's um, National Day of Action, and Tess Ryan in the morning, um, the Burpai, uh scholar was talking about universities as extractive, and I think that's really important for us to remember, that they're not set up to be warm, fuzzy institutions um, that support the people who work within them. They're, they're set up to be part of that colonial extractive process, whether it's extracting our knowledge, extracting our time, our labour, our insights, Um, And there's ways to work within that and around it and to play with it. Um, But there are these fundamental issues within universities. Um, So I guess that's, you know, at the same time as I'm kind of all in within the university sector, I'm also very aware of these problems and these challenges and the need to do the work of reimagining what higher education could be um, within Australia and internationally.
0: Yeah, definitely. And as somebody who's also affiliated with a couple of universities, I totally understand that difficult position around uh, trying to imagine something different within the sector while working within a colonial institution. Um, So in light of the importance of transformation in the sector um, and the COVID-19 crisis that we're facing right now, what's been going on around trying to protect the sector and people in the sector? What is the job protection framework that has come up from the NTEU? How did it come about? Like, who was consulted when it was developed? Um, and who does it protect? Who does it leave behind?
7: Yep. So, yeah, so basically the union, National Tertiary Education Union, came up with this job protection framework. Um, it's kind of unclear exactly how it was de- developed, um we know that it was developed with the union talking, well, the sort of heads of the union, um, not rank and file, but the heads of the union talking to Universities Australia um, and talking to a couple of, and you know, through that to, to a couple of uh, vice chancellors um, to work out what the framework would be. A friend Another friend of mine pointed out that to me that um we don't know what the union's original ask was. We don't know what they compromised on. We're like, we don't even know that level of detail. They didn't release to us a sense of this is what we're going in with and this is what we're prepared to compromise on and this is what we won't compromise on. We have no idea what our union asked for in these things, And I think that's really crucial. I haven't really seen people make that point. But I think it's something that would be really good to know was how much were we sold out? How much, you know, were they prepared to compromise? So this yeah, this job protections framework it's kind of based around the idea that the task of the union is to find compromise it's It imagines a university where the vice chancellors um are on the side of the rest of the of the employees um where we're all in sort of one um i guess project or program working together um to build a future which I think fundamentally misunderstands the power structure of universities and the task of vice chancellors. Um, That's, I guess, a concern that many people have have sort of said. But basically the jobs protection framework goes in with the idea that let's make a series of compromises around um, employment conditions, around wage, um, around hiring practices, in order to save as many jobs as possible. Um, it recognises that jobs will be lost, uh, or it kind of concedes that jobs will be lost without putting up a fight over that point, and I think we can talk about how much we can, we can and should fight on that, but it just concedes the point. Jobs are going to be lost. How many can we save? And it makes a claim to be saving a certain number of jobs. This is not my area of expertise, but many people who are more expert in this have said that the numbers are not clear. The numbers the workings out that they claim to have done are not sufficient evidence that the number of jobs or effective full-time employments um, that they claim to be saving will actually be saved. So it's kind of dodgy on the numbers. It's dodgy on the approach. It's dodgy on some of the measures within it. Um, and there's, you know, there's lots of different measures within it. Um, but it's also been dodgy on the way it's been selling it people, the a lot of the union meetings on campuses. Um, and within the NTU, you, you need to be a member of one branch. You're only allowed to be a member of one branch. So for someone like me who's employed at four universities, I'm only allowed to be a member at one branch, um, which means that I have no say at the other branches about what will happen. So it's a fundamental misunderstanding within the NTU about how higher education employment works today. I'm not the only one. If it's working at multiple campuses, it's incredibly common for people to be working at two, three, four campuses or universities. Um, but so yeah, within these branch meetings, and a lot of, some of them have been shutting down debate. They haven't been allowing questions. Um, they've been really going quite hard, um, on stopping discussion and stopping people's very real, the discussion of people's very real concerns about some of these elements that just don't seem workable and seem to misunderstand how people are employed particularly you know they again you know then two is making claims that this will save casuals jobs but we're not seeing the evidence for that it's not dealing with um a reality that's going on of subjects being cut um and then full-time staff or people in ongoing jobs or in you know contract jobs but not casual labor um that people are being redeployed. If your subject's cut and you're not lecturing that subject anymore, you, you've got room in your workload to tutor at a, for another subject. So that's a casual tutor's job is gone. The, the framework just doesn't know how to deal with that. And in, it explicitly concedes those
0: jobs, those casual jobs. So it's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, we can definitely go for a long time unpacking different parts of the framework. But um, – Before we get into some of the fight back around it, I was just wondering how the universities been responding to the framework. It's really varied. Some universities have said, so a bunch of
7: universities have said they don't want to be part of it. Um, And some of them have said that because they don't need to be for financial reasons, um, that they've got the reserves and they don't actually like that some of these proposed cuts are too draconian, too harsh, and they won't need to employ them. Some have said no because they're not interested in um, the oversight functions that, as part of the framework, provides some oversight from um, an external body, which is a union. There's been a law professor out of ANU has, you know, has published some, published online some thinking around that that says that it might not be legal to have this external body. Um, but some of them seem to be worried about that and so withdrawn. Others have withdrawn because they want to be able to sack whoever they want um, and do whatever they want. So as one example of that, Melbourne Uni is not being part of the framework and um, has today the Vice-Chancellor sent out an email um, saying that they are going to run a non-union ballot to uh, cut wages to to defer a pay increase. That was hard fought for. We, we went on strike for that wage increase. Um, and that this can, you know, Vice Chancellor wants to vote on it being deferred. Deacon today, um, also said they won't be part of the framework and they're cutting, um, hundreds of jobs. I think it's 300 jobs cut and 100 jobs that were going to be advertised and not going to be, ab- uh, not going to be filled. So 400 jobs lost in total. Yeah, I guess it's, it's awful and we're, there's an insufficient fight um, coming from the union but grassroots people were
0: yeah fighting yeah and I should also just mention we're reporting this on the 25th of May so things may have changed no don't mind Um, things may have changed by Thursday um, but you know I highly doubt that universities will have uh, pulled back on those positions Yes. Um, so you mentioned the fight back as well. Um, yeah. What has been going on among rank and file NTU members and also among, you know, other potential non-members who have been pushing back across the sector?
2: Yeah. So the
7: pushback has been huge. And yeah, it feels like it's, it's like every minute of every day, things are changing. Um, so yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, yes, I should have said that today was Monday. Um, because it's really, I feel like, you know, I think four different pieces came up today. Um, one on overland um, one on um independent australia there 's there a bunch of you know newspaper articles um it 's constantly shifting terrain and the fight back is constant there was you know there's um rank and file meetings happening at various campuses where you know if the union is stopping questionings happening rank and file members are, are meeting and putting forward their position and and coming to group decisions um Last week, as I mentioned, there was a the National Day of Action, and there was a bunch of NTU coordinated actions, but there was also a separate um, online all day, or sorry, all day online um, sort of forum and and different people speaking out, and there was um, singing, and there was all sorts of things going on. Um, there's a new website has just been launched for the the NTU Fight Back campaign, which I guess is the more centralised part of the. Campaign, so it's entity fightback. Site, um, s-i-t-e, and yeah, so to kind of try to coordinate it. I'm, you know, I, I hear a lot of stuff around, you know, what is the No campaign actually asking for? What is their vision? And I think partly I want to say that the No campaign is kind of anyone who's considering voting No. That I think that this is one of the, you know, we need to think that this is a really broad campaign. Um, as something that anyone can be involved in, that anyone can mount their own argument about, um, that we, the possibility of envisioning what a different university could be is for all is work for all of us to do. Um, and it's important work, and this is obviously universities are going to change out at this moment. The government has forced us to become reliant on, well, this is claim, kind of, this mythos that the government has forced universities to become reliant on international students in this awful awful um, exploitative way and we need to think about what that looks like we need you know better relationships between all the different types of staff and all the different types of students um, to reimagine what the sector could look like to think about it as you know a different framework for education and i think that's kind of so much of what the fight back to me has looked like is people reclaiming union processes um, rethinking um, what's possible, opening new spaces for discussing what a university could look like, um, for taking the time to do that radical reimagining work that is inevitable in this moment um, and is so necessary.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, as scary as it's been, um, watching I've been watching very closely the Twitter debates about this, um, and it's been – you know, horrible with the massive job losses and intensified precarity across the sector, but it's also been incredibly hopeful. Um, and there's been a huge amount of solidarity built, which I guess is something sustaining us. I'd like to think across this time. So I think we need to wrap up, um, in a sec, but is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you'd like to mention?
7: I mean, I guess just to say, like what to re, to reiterate and hide your last point of like, is job losses are terrible and even if they're inevitable, we can't be dismissive about that. That, you know, a job loss is someone's hopes and dreams about their future. It's the loss of their knowledge that they will produce. It's loss of their teaching. It's loss of a set of human interactions. It's loss of income. It's how many hundreds of people who can't afford to pay their bills and the stress. It's a stress of every deacon employee, to pick one example tonight, for, until they know who's going to lose their job. You know, how do
5: you...
7: How, and it's a very real human cost to what's going on, which we know, of course, and we know that Australia is not facing the human cost as badly as some other countries in the world um, in terms of this whole COVID situation. But I think, yeah, we can't allow... Ourselves to become abstracted by the numbers and by the discussions over what does one particular point mean these are human lives and and people deserve better than everything that's going on at the moment and I think fighting is a really important part of that
0: absolutely. This is an opportune time to demonstrate that we're not going to we're not going to concede to people being considered as disposable mm. yes. um, yeah, yeah. Um, so thank you so, so much for joining me. I'll put a link to the NTE Fightback site um, in the show notes and in our promo. But, yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. You just heard a conversation between myself and Jordi Silverstein, who's a historian and casual academic working across multiple universities in so-called Australia, about the National Tertiary Education Union's Job Protection Framework, the effects of COVID-19 on the university sector and the pushback against the job protection framework and solidarity movements that have sprung up around the country in support of casual workers. What a huge show, as usual. So we started off by hearing Max speaking with Tanya Talaga about her new book, All Our Relations, Indigenous Trauma in the Shadow of Colonialism. We then heard some poetry from Darlene Silva-Soberano. After that, um, Scheherazade brought us the first part of the Think Tanger interview series from Deakin University students uh, as participating in the Global Journalism Exchange Program. And finally, I spoke with Jordi Silverstein about the NTE job protection framework and the state of higher education in so-called Australia. What a massive show, guys.
5: Yeah, it was so great.
0: (laughs) I reckon that's all we have time for today on Thursday Breakfast. Um, And now we go to Lost in
1: Science.
5: And we'll be back next week. So see you later, alligator.
1: See you, alligators. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton or check them
8: out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.